Nuts to another episode of Religionless Church. As always, I'm stoked for this episode. It's going to be with Jeffrey Pugh, Dr. Jeffrey Pugh, who actually just recently retired from teaching at Elon University for many years. Uh, in the episode, I think it was right at the end of the semester. Um, so when we were recording, he was still you know, technically uh, teaching, but uh, That time has passed. The summer is here, and he is enjoying retirement. Uh, So, yeah, uh, Jeffrey uh, Pugh and I talk about Bonhoeffer. Uh, Dr. Pugh is a Bonhoeffer scholar and just an all-around badass. We also have, throughout the episode, um, one of my favorite bands, Comrades. Uh, They kind of have that sort of classic post-hardcore sound uh, with a lot of really just pretty beautiful melodies and some even ambient stuff that uh, they just are so good. So if you were like a big fan of Beloved, which was on Tooth & Nail um, back in like 2003, back in the early 2000s, then you will love Comrades. I mean, they really are a sort of new embodiment of Beloved Comrades. So uh, I cannot be more stoked about you listening to Comrades throughout this episode. And I even had the privilege of interviewing their their bassist and vocalist, Laura. And so again, uh, you can, as always, get connected to Dr. Pugh, Dr. Jeffrey Pugh, and Comrades uh, in their links below. So if you check out the description, uh, you'll be able to see the links to get more connected with uh, both Dr. Pugh and with Laura from Comrades. And as always, you can get connected to my work at masonmenega.com. That link will also be in the description. And uh, yeah, you can read my papers on that website. You can get more episodes if you have not already explored all the episodes that I have. And if you go to my link, uh, and I think there's a, there should be a link in the description as well for my Patreon page, in which you can access exclusive papers, you can get early access to episode previews, you can get um, access to asking me questions that I will respond to in like a video lecture, and if you get that highest tier, then you even get to be a part of the religionless church uh, experience by being interviewed by me. So. Uh, there's all sorts of different other rewards um, and exclusive material that you can gain access to. And uh, I highly recommend and I would love it if you became a Patreon supporter. So uh, enough about me and enough about Religionless Church. Um, and let's get more into Religionless Christianity with Bonhoeffer. So uh, without further ado, here is Dr. Jeffrey Pugh.
Today we have Jeffrey Pugh. Uh, Jeffrey is a religion professor at Elon University and uh, an author of several books, including Religionless Christianity, Diedrich Bonhoeffer in Troubled Times, which re was released in 2009. And obviously, listening to the Religionless Church podcast, I uh, might be coining or playing a little bit on uh, that, that concept of Bonhoeffer's. So uh, yeah, J uh, Dr. Pugh and I are going to be going all out on religionless Christianity and Bonhoeffer. But before we get to, uh, before we get to religionless Christianity, I want to ask you the same question that I ask everybody. Who is Jeffrey Pugh to Jeffrey Pugh? Oh, okay, so I'm sure everybody stumbles over that question. I'll be no <laughs> exception. Um, I'm just a pilgrim. Okay. Uh, and uh, one time there was a statement, I can't remember, it was D.T. Niles that said that uh, Christians are a beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. Mm. But um, I'm just a pilgrim on... on uh, the path, and I'm getting ready to retire, so I have no idea what happens next. Are you excited about that retirement? Um, yes, I'm, I'm excited <laughs> in some ways because yeah. I think that uh, it's time um, for me to, to retire. It's the undergraduates certainly are kind of telling me that. Um, <laughs> But uh, so excited one way and then terrified because these are interesting times to start going on fixed income. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Somebody, so I was in a session a couple of uh, months ago and somebody asked me if, if it just, if all of it, if all of it shouldn't just burn down. And I said, well, I'd feel a lot better about that if I wasn't starting social security in June. So, <laughs> So um, let's get into to Bonhoeffer. I'm sure one night you thought to yourself, I know what the world needs more of, books about Bonhoeffer. <laughs> so uh, what, what inspired you to write about Bonhoeffer? Well, I mean, that kind of goes back to graduate school where I started uh, working BART. And um, okay. of course, if you're working in BART, the name Bonhoeffer comes up pretty significantly. So... I started just sort of Bonhoeffer was an ancillary interest. And then at some point, um, Bonhoeffer became more of an interest and more interesting to me than Bart was. So when oh. I finished graduate school, I wrote my dissertation on Bart. And when I finished graduate school and started teaching, I found that the students were more energized by Bonhoeffer's biography. They were more energized by his story. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that started a lifelong um, process of being involved in Bonhoeffer circles. So with the International Bonhoeffer Society and then the AAR section of Bonhoeffer, um, I chaired that for a while. And um, so in my interest in all of that, it, at some point I was sort of had finished my religion and science book and was trying to think about what my next book project would be. And I I thought about the fact that um, everybody has an interpretation of Bonhoeffer, and so That's right. um, I might as well go ahead and, and put mine in there too, and so that's where the book came from. Mm -hmm.
So Bonhoeffer started um, more explicitly writing about religionless Christianity near the end of his life. Um, yes. In the let- letters and papers. So how is religionless Christianity tied to Bonhoeffer being imprisoned? And then I kind of have a second part to that question, which is, could he have conceptualized of religionless Christianity without death staring him down? I don't think it was death staring him down personally so much as it was the epic collapse and failure of Christianity in the Nazi Mm -hmm. regime. So the situation that Bonhoeffer was facing was the fact that the confessing church had collapsed under the onslaught of Hitler. Um, The bourgeois church had collapsed. Uh, well before the confessing church. The confessing church, I think Bonhoeffer would say, was trying to protect uh, its institutional privilege, um, maybe perhaps more so than being faithful right. um, in, in, the, in a particular moment. You know, when I was growing up uh, and going through seminary way back in the day, you know, Bonhoeffer and the confessing church were held up to us as symbols of Christians that resisted Hitler. And then the more you learn about the confessing church, the more you realize that's not exactly the case. It's a lot more nuanced than that. So Bonhoeffer is sitting in that cell. He has time to reflect and think about where sort of the course of human history has led him. And when he reflects on that, he sees that in the moment of trouble, the church was absolutely worthless. There may have been pockets of resistance, uh, and certainly there were good people, but as a a community, as an institution, um, the church had been so uh, captured um, by the state uh, that it was unable to actually present a prophetic witness uh, in the time of trial. So I think when he's sitting there, he's not so much responding out of his own personal peril. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that he is responding out of a felt uh, dejection about what the failure that he had had seen. Later on in Letters and Papers, right, he comes to this outline for a book, and he's talking about what should the church look like, or what, you know, in going forward, uh, what will be the contours of what what that that looks like and it comes out with something very different than a state lutheran church in bonhoeffer's religionless christianity it it was a complete response to nazi germany um but bonhoeffer earlier in his life had come to america studied at union and certainly had an impactful experience. How much of Bonhoeffer's religionless Christianity do you think was actually influenced by his experience in America? I mean, obviously it was very much in response to Nazi Germany, but it seems like there might be some bits and pieces of it that were brought uh, from America that helped him conceptualize of this idea of religionless Christianity. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, he comes to America the first time, um, and he's he's sitting around in these classrooms, appalled 
at the lack of theological sort of conversation. He's, hmm. you know, because America, in the American classroom, they were oriented to social action, to social witness, right? Right. And, and he writes these things about how appalling it is that, <laughs> that American students seem to be so stupid um, about church history or, or doctrine or Lutheranism or, you know, I mean, and uh, so he's, he, he, he comes to appreciate, I think, um, the, that setting more than he did when he got here. But I think a large part of that, I think Bonhoeffer scholars would be unanimous in this, um, came from his work at the Abyssinian Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. So when he becomes involved in the black church, he, he comes to see a, another aspect of what church looks like in America. And I think he gets an appreciation for what church looks like from, from, the, from below. He writes later on in, um, in a letter to the co-conspirators 10 years after, I think he says, we have come to see, we have come to see uh, what life looks like from the underside. Um, from those without privilege. And one of the remarkable aspects and kind of intriguing aspects of his biography to me is that he comes from such a place of privilege, such a bourgeois family, mm-hmm. um, upper middle class in our terms, with every privilege afforded him in society. His father's well-known uh, scholar or, or psychiatrist is, and he comes to this place uh, where he's able to see life from another trajectory than the one that he mm. grew up in. Mm-hmm. It's so hard for people to move outside of their, their given space, their own ethnocentrism, to understand life from a different perspective. So in as much as he's able to understand life from a, from a different position, from positionality of, of the... Uh, of the underprivileged, of the outcast, of the oppressed, um, it, it, as those themes show up and as the central theme of suffering shows up in religionless Christianity, mm-hmm. I think that you could say that not his classes so much at Union, but the totality of his experience um, working in the black church and also his engagement with other American students. Um, Frank Fisher and others. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that probably shows up in in some significant way uh, with Bonhoeffer's understanding of what the sort of beating heart of Christianity was. So, religionless Christianity. It is directly influenced by the the context of of Nazi Germany and, and the and the political order of it, and I think it obviously then speaks to us today uh, in in very political terms that ought to influence our our political life. But religiously, the concept shaped a lot of the 1960s death of God theologians, um, and I, I don't think you really so much get into the depth of this in your book, but um, in what ways do you think religionless Christianity influenced the death of God movement? Yeah. You know, there, there, 
there's some argument that the death of God movement, as it was interpreted in American society, um, never really got what Bonhoeffer was doing mm. um, in, re- in, in the letters and papers from prison. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at people like Van Buren and Altizer and others, yep. um, you know, the argument can be made that, uh, that what they were sort of trying to convey was not necessarily inaccurate. I mean, in one way it was, because, because God, God's self never dies in Bonhoeffer. Right. Um, but the constructions of God that religion brings to us, um, I think Bonhoeffer would certainly say those, those are dead. Mm-hmm. The metaphysical God. The, and so in as much as there were people sort of working that territory in the 60s, I think that that's one of the things that they were trying to convey was that that God, God's self, um, or, or God, the very definitions of God, can be a product of culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, that theology itself is a product of culture, and that that's an inescapable gravity that we cannot escape. So that kind of apophatic dimension, right? That we know nothing really. Um, you know, certainly Bonhoeffer influences uh, those theologians. The degree to which they get him right, um, once again, you know, that wasn't one of the areas that I, I delved into. Yeah. I just remember growing up, I saw the Time magazine cover is God Dead. Yep. And that, and that like, you know? real, like, dark red lettering. That, yeah, you know. And, you know, the, the, the culture responds to sort of certain clues, right? I mean, so they may have just understood, you know, what was trying to be conveyed was that all attempts to sort of speak words about God are actually always going to be fraught um, Mm -hmm. with limitations of historical contingency, um, the social location, uh, and the position from which somebody is speaking. Mm-hmm. And that, that to me, is um, something that we still have not yet come to grips with. So th- this next question we, we've touched on a, a little bit, um, but I want to really dive deep into it. And so you talked about before that there are those scholars who try to exegete Bonhoeffer and those that are more hermeneutical in their approach. Uh, And and so this next question, I really want us to more exegete. Uh, So with all this said about religionless Christianity, what was religionless Christianity to Bonhoeffer? Mm. Well, you're right. I have sort of uh, moved around that a little bit. I I think... um... That's a good question. I think what religionless Christianity was for Bonhoeffer was a stripping way of all the accoutrements that Christianity had acquired to get down to the nub of what is the incarnation. Hmm. Um, I think that the question for Bonhoeffer is, who is Jesus for us today? Very Bonhoeffering. And, right. I mean, but you asked, you know. Yeah, that's right. So. so so I, and and when he when he tries to strip away all of the metaphysics, all of the the sort of um, 
political stuff. He's trying to get to what is the heart of um, of this faith, and and finally, what he comes down to is is something that he believed all of his life. It shows up in his early writings, and even in Acton Being and Sanctorum Communio, Christ is the concrete. Um, Christ is the expression of the real. Bonhoeffer was a theologian of the real, if anything else. Um, Barry Harvey has a great book about this out now, I think, through um, Wiffenstock. Uh, okay. And uh, maybe the Cascadia imprint of Wiffenstock. But um, so I think for Bonhoeffer, religionless Christianity was an attempt to, to get to who Jesus is hmm. um, without the centuries of uh, expressions that we have built uh, that have structured Christian doctrine, Christian theology, he comes down to that very simple point is that at the end, the question is who Christ really is. Mm-hmm. And when he starts to ask that question, certain ideas emerge from that questioning that I think are profoundly important for us to consider today. So in the book, Religionless Christianity, my argument in there is that suffering constitutes one of those central spaces of religionless Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, how we respond to it, how we um, embrace it, our willingness to enter into it. Um, you know, suffering in some way is the sort of existential human experience, mm-hmm. maybe even more so than love. Um, suffering mm-hmm. is transhistorical, it's transcultural. Um, to be human is to know suffering, mm-hmm. and if which is in, perfect. Why you're like you're preaching on a Good Friday sermon right now? Yeah, yeah. So, and I'm not going to get all you know as great as Trip Fuller is, you know, and he gets <laughs> both. But, um, but at that point, then uh, that seems to be in some ways, um, Bonhoeffer says, you know, until we're ready to enter into that space. Um, that's suffering. And, you know, I wish I had my copy of Letters and Papers from Prison in front of me because I could start flipping to these places and reading Bonhoeffer's own words about it. Mm-hmm. But um, it's that it's that willingness to enter into the suffering of Jesus to wait with Christ in Gethsemane mm. um, that, that Bonhoeffer, I think, says that's the place where all of the, the sort of the, um, the dressing, if you will, uh, that we put around the religion of Christianity comes down to that's where the rubber meets the road. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm going to go ahead and stop there. You may have a follow up to that, yeah. but I, I think that religionless Christianity is is an attempt to sort of understand in some profoundly existential way what is the incarnation, what does it mean for God to embody God's self in the world, mm-hmm. and and the willingness to enter into the suffering of the world. Mm-hmm. So since, okay, so you didn't ask this question, but I'm just, and I'm not trying to take no, over. No, no, go ahead. But, so this is Good Friday, right? And, and all over the world, countless number of Christians are thinking that this is the day where, where Jesus just took a beating for us. Um, that the mm-hmm. violence of the cross was, you know, God killing God's son because our sin was so bad. And, you know, we are worms, and, you know, I mean, 
you know, that that is in some way, you know, the sort of the measure of Christianity, this notion of vicarious suffering. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, in all fairness, it's not that they can't read those texts in the, in Scripture. Um, but I think that, that the profoundness of God willingness and loving the human community and the non-human community mm-hmm. um, to the point of, of entering into the suffering, becoming human, um, is the space where God takes responsibility for our suffering, mm. um, where God identifies with our suffering, where God shows that the love of God is so boundless um, that nothing will separate us. Mm. And, and rather than the, um, uh, this sort of notion or this idea that Jesus is our blood sacrifice, um, that there is this notion that the embodiment of God means that God is willing to enter into the suffering that the empire visits upon the body mm. um, and to experience that with us, um, to, to express solidarity with the human family um, in that mm-hmm. moment. That is, at some point, I think, what Bonhoeffer was trying to articulate and does articulate very strongly. He, he never feels like he's ever got a handle or a total complete handle. At least this is my reading, okay? Somebody else may have different interpretations. But my reading of him is that he never really feels like he has a complete handle on this. He's, he's always, especially at the end of Letters and Papers from Prison, when he's talking about his outline for a book, which is a book that still needs to be written. And in some measure, one of the things that I was trying to do in Religionless Christianity was think along with Bonhoeffer about that outline for a book. You know, what has Mm. the institution done? Where has it taken us? How has it failed? What do we look like going forward? Um, But he never really says, this is it. He's always in that space, that kind of liminal space of where is God present in the world today? Hmm. Um, And that, and he says, it's not with the it's not with the state, it's not with government, it's not with the powers, it's with those who are oppressed. Your, your book, Religionless Christianity, was released in 2009, so nine years ago almost. Yeah. Uh, what, what would you change about it now, given our present political context? Nothing. Nothing. I would change nothing. Um, I would go back. Okay, so in all honesty, I'd go back and do a better job of editing. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes we get in too much of a hurry to finish our projects. That's right. So, and the great um, agony of any author is to go back and read your stuff and see all the mistakes. Um, but the content uh, of the book, I would change. I wrote it at, in a response to uh, the Bush era and mm-hmm. the launching of the war in Iraq, and specifically the using of just war theory to justify um, the launching of that war, um, and and the argument from people that I consider friends um, who, uh, uh, who were using the argument of just war theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the book was an attempt to to sort of raise the question of, so 
in, in a world where the state and economics seems to be our kind of ultimate concern, um, in a world where we structure life far more around the sort of twin powers of state and economy, um, what, what does Christianity mean in, in that world? And so, you know, you could go back and you could put in the very same things that we're dealing with today. Mm. And uh, I, I think that the book, for me at least, uh, I, I wouldn't change a thing uh, mm. as far as the central argument of the book. And the central argument of the book is that the church failed and it's going to fail again. Um, uh, in Charlottesville on August the 12th, mm -hmm. I was sort of there with the clergy. Mm -hmm. uh, on the clergy line. And um, as I was standing across from the guys with the machine guns and stuff, the militia, not mm -hmm. the Virginia State Police, but a Pennsylvania group that had come down to sort of ring Emancipation Park. And I, I was standing there thinking about uh, Bonhoeffer a lot. Mm. And um, what struck me is the fact that the church won't, it's not showing up now. Um, because mm -hmm. it's it's so captured by the political order that it has no space outside of how it's being conditioned by economics and politics um, to respond to the situation in which we're in. Mm -hmm. So when you have a vast majority of Americans sort of rah-rahing the war on Iraq, and you have a vast majority of Americans today, I'm going to say over half, um, who would be more than willing to go to war in Iran if their government manipulates them into it. Um, then you see the negation of Christianity. And, and more than that, you see the, the ongoing crucifixion of Christ um, in the political order. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are arguments that I make in the book, Religionless Christianity, that I think are still arguments that I would still adhere to. Mm. Um, and Certainly, one of the sort of gut-wrenching pieces for me is to know that if something happens now in this time, the church will not be there to stop it. Mm -hmm. They will not throw their body in front of the trucks that carry missiles. They will not throw their body. And, you know, the church did not, in 1932, the church could have shut Hitler down. Mm -hmm. They could have recognized what was the the Faustian bargain that was being asked of them, and they could have shut that down. They could have said, "We won't work in your factories. We won't work in your schools. We won't work in your. We will make sure that everything in this culture shuts down because you are telling us to hate Jews." But the church couldn't do that because it had a two thousand year history mm -hmm. of anti-Semitism. And, and now that, that anti-Semitism, it still shows up. Mm -hmm. um, it was on the streets of Charlottesville, but it's also now joined with anti-Islam and anti-Muslim. Right. Um, and as much as the church lets that go or does not address that or does not sort of profoundly confront that in our day, it's doomed to repeat the same mistakes so that the, the, new, uh, the new master may not be Hitler, but the authoritarianism of Hitler will still exert itself in other political orders. Right. And that's one of the things that we don't understand is that we have made a fetish of Hitler as the personification of evil. So anything that doesn't rise to that level, mm. uh, we, we kind of 
see it as politics is normal. Right. But authoritarianism, you, you know, Hitler wasn't Hitler until he was. Mm-hmm. You know, when he gets his start, he's he's not Hitler. He's Paul, Uncle Adolf, you know? I right. mean, he's, you know, this is the person that's going to lead us to greatness. This is the person that's going to give us national pride. This is the person that's going to make the economy work again and the trains run on time. And then you just cede more power to that mm-hmm. because your life is is unhindered. Um, and then you wake up one day and you understand, you know, you're you're like, why are they expelling all the Muslims? Why are they trying to kill all the Jews? I mean, so we'll we'll fail again. And and standing there in in, in uh, Charlottesville um, with that remnant of very brave and faithful people, I kept thinking to myself, we're we're going to miss it again because mm-hmm. we don't even see it. It's coming. It's it's emerging, and I know everybody's saying, "Well, the the alt right is dying, and they're fragmenting and stuff." But the minute you say, "Yeah, so we can ignore this now," that's when it starts to metastasize. Mm-hmm. So that's a long and involved question, too. <laughs> right? But, but you know, the short answer is, I still think that there are things in that book that that I would stand by today and say these are lessons that Bonhoeffer offers us for the situation that we're in. So today we have Laura, and Laura is the bassist and vocalist of of Comrades, one of my favorite bands. Uh, I love seeing them anytime they come near Minneapolis. I always make sure to, to come around and check them out because they're just so wonderful. And uh, as you have been listening throughout this episode, you've been listening to Comrades. And uh, yeah, I'm going to talk to Laura here for a little bit. And we're going to just talk about the band and maybe some upcoming things you got going on. But before we do th- any sort of questions on your last album, I'm curious on uh, kind of the sort of uh, themes maybe that uh were that you tried to convey throughout your last album yeah i'm long great yeah well that record is kind of um i mean the overarching theme is just like finding hope even when things are really hard Mm -hmm. and so trying to seek good and seek um I don't know, just whether that can be, I mean, good is pretty vague. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like, if, it just depends on the situation. Like, we have songs about um, uh, being in uh, an environment where you were, like, scared into your faith mm-hmm. and, um, you know, moving through that. And we have songs about um, how you might have a friend who won't let you help them um but they won't help themselves either and it's heavy either way you know Mm -hmm. um so it's still about seeking good even when things are really hard Mm -hmm. when very um just nebulous sometimes Mm -hmm. they're really confusing and so um we named the album lone gray just because um Sometimes that's how you feel. You feel like um, the black and white is 
is gone and you also feel very much like your choices are yours and it might not be what everybody else is doing um but you have to choose to hope and you have to choose to look for the good in the world Mm -hmm. no matter what um even when things are you know pretty bleak Mm -hmm. or um yeah because i mean and that's the world we live in right now so right um it just felt very close and so that's what happened with the, the record i don't think we intended for it to be that way but that's um all the songs ended up uh just with that kind of content so yeah it was a surprise i think to all of us but you yeah. know and you like step back and you're like oh this is what we did cool <laughs> um when you were writing and recording what song surprised you the most or was maybe the most unexpected and however whatever way that you want to define that or think about that i think shepherd tim probably was the most surprising Hmm. that was one of the songs where um the drummer and i brought our lyrics and we're like this is what we have for this song um he had written like the first um where he's singing on the record and uh it was very obvious that i had the second half of the song already hmm. and uh, and it was just like we opened our books and we we're like this is the song this is it and it all fit together really well and it just also happened to be um corresponding with one of the songs from our, our other album so it was just hmm. everything fell into place really quickly with that song um some of the other ones were a, a real struggle but yeah that one, it was just like, oh, this is it. This is the song. All the parts that we had fit. Like, it didn't take us very long to get the vocal melodies to match up with what it should be. And so it was really cool just how all that fell together. That's so cool. Inside. Come on. Oh, we have a guest. Another guest. Yeah. I'm just feeling that cracked because we're going to do that the whole time. But. <laughs> Yeah, so um, I'd say definitely Shepherdson was the surprise. Like huh. when I was writing it, um, yeah. That's interesting. Um, yeah. What uh, what are some upcoming projects or upcoming uh, things that could be happening uh, with comrades? Uh, we are literally working on new songs when you like, and I was like, oh, I have to stop and do this. So we were. <laughs> We're, we're working on new stuff now. Um, oh my goodness, that's exciting. Not sure what's going to happen. Like, ha- I don't know, you know, timelines or anything like mm-hmm. that. Just so many things are. Like, our drummer right now lives like a thousand miles away. So, <laughs> um, just like figuring out schedules and getting all of the stuff like where we want it to be, mm-hmm. figuring out what we want it to sound like. Um, that's kind of where we are. And what we're doing so um hopefully this year our goal is to have it out by this year but that's about as specific <laughs> that's awesome i'm excited <laughs> um so i know you are a c.s lewis fan collectively oh, yeah. as a band what is comrade's favorite c.s lewis book mm-hmm. can you even can you even like 
like so, even think of one? I've read a lot of. I think. Well, we've all read Narnia, so of course. Um, yeah, I think Joe really likes a horse and his boy. I think that's hmm. Which I married him, so you'd think I would know. This, I'm not sure. That <laughs> should um, be one of the top things you know about I, about I, him. Favorite book. Well, our favorite, like technically, our favorite book is Lord of the Rings. Okay. As as a band uh, together, you're gonna. Well, as like a married couple, I okay. Your book, but C.S. Lewis books. I'm because I was trying to think like how many he's read because I read more C.S. Lewis than he has. Um. I and it's like we've read different C.S. Lewis books, oh, so okay. I've read like a lot. Like he's read *Near Christianity*, which is weird because I haven't. Hmm. But I've read *The Abolition of Man*, and I've read *The Great Divorce*, and like all of these right. other. And then I've also read the space trilogy, and he has just started the space trilogy, so he's gotten through. Um, especially his strength, but he hasn't. No, I lied. That's the last book. He's done Outside <laughs> the Planet, but he hasn't done Paralandra yet. He hasn't finished it. So um, it has to be an new book. And I mean, I love Horse and His Boy, too. So I want to say it's Horse and His Boy. Okay. Uh, yeah. We'll take it. Uh, yeah. I, uh, that's a, that's, favorite, a, that's fa- very valid. Yeah. My favorite new book is... Um, the last battle i don't know part of me kind of appreciates that it's not just like another narnia book i mean you could like easily default to that but no you're gonna go you're gonna go with something else um last question here and this is the question i'm most excited about when you are traveling all around the country what is the one stop that you have to make to go eat some food cookout like is that like a, a brand or a chain so cookout is this restaurant and it's only in like there's there's tennessee virginia north carolina there might be and i think there's some in south carolina but that wait where else did we go was there one in alabama anyway so it's only in the south and it's this restaurant and it's just like cookout food. Like mm-hmm. you get like they have burgers and like chicken tenders and that kind of stuff. But the thing <laughs> is that they have this deal called the cookout tray. And the cookout tray is like you pick an entree and they have like ten options. Okay. And then you pick two sides and you get a drink and it's like four ninety nine. What? And then if you want a milkshake, which they have 40 different flavors of milkshakes, and you can mix them all together. And they're, like, big. They're, like, two pounds of milk. Or it feels like that. It's, like, a decent milkshake. And you can get Oreo. And you can make mint Oreo. You can do whatever you want. It's actually insane, the combination of milkshake that you can create. But, you know, it's only, like, 550. So it's only, like, 50 extra cents. like six bucks for wow. all this food and a milkshake and it's awesome and when i lived in virginia there was one like two minutes from my house and um i think that's the only thing i really miss like food wise just okay. like cookout. but it, right. when we're all out there it's like we just eat cookout for like three days 
That's awesome. I have never heard of it, but I will make note of that. That is an unbelievable like, deal. And like, it's not like super phenomenal food, but it's like I can get a barbecue sandwich and hush puppies and a milkshake, and I'm so happy. Right. For five bucks, that's totally yeah. worth it. Yeah. And like, you can't really get that kind of stuff other places. And it's just, you know, because I think that's, and Joe, you know, Joe likes it too. It's, and it's got a lot of options. So you can take almost everybody there and they can find something to eat. Um, if you're vegan, you're just eating fries. But <laughs> you get cheer wine too, which that's is awesome. Well, thank you so much, Laura. This has been really fun. Um, <laughs> Again, everybody out there listening, you need to check out Comrades. If you were a beloved fan back in the day, this is the band that you have to listen to. I know you and I have t- kind of talked about this before where you're like, oh, my God, they're like my heroes. So yeah. there's so uh, if you're a beloved fan, make sure you definitely check out Comrades. They are simply amazing, and I can't rave about them enough. We've talked a little bit about this this next question too, um, but I'm going to ask you to do the impossible task in which I would like you to separate the politics and theological commitments of religionless Christianity. I want you to separate those as much as you can. I know it's an impossible task, but we'll try it. Um, and I want you to really like focus on theologically. How do you see religionless Christianity playing into our religious context? Um, you know, so like religiously, we we see all this sort of deaffiliation with with uh, the institutionalized church, but yet spirituality or like a sense of of faith is still just as high as it ever has been. Um, and, and so there's all this sort of conversation about that and. How do you see religionless Christianity playing into uh, those trends that we are seeing? Yeah, that's a great question. Because once again, right, the failure of the church is that it offers people no community Mm. around which to coalesce and and resist um, the the uh, the the uh, the oncoming darkness. so, I mean, that is a great question. Um, I, I, there's a couple of different ways I want to respond. Religionless Christianity does offer us the lenses through which we can cut through the bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, it It does offer us a way that... Uh, we can ask what is essential um, to faithful witness of the gospel in the world. And the the church is the church, right? It 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 it's it is what it is. There's there's little that you can do or I can do. I've I've had actually 40 years as an ordained Methodist. Mm. Um, so I had I was in the parish at the start of my career. My wife is still a United Methodist minister. You work within the institutions you have, not the institutions you want. Mm. But those institutions no longer appeal to millennials. They no longer appeal to the generation after millennials. The, that church just doesn't 
have any appeal mm -hmm. um, to vast numbers of people. The problem with that is that then you have no community um, that that is able to be strong enough to withstand the the massive power of state and economic institutions. Hmm. The, the problem with um, spiritual but not religious, uh, or as Robert Bella called it a long time ago in Habits of the Heart, when he was talking about a woman named Sheila who had taken different parts of different religious perspectives and, and integrated those into what she called Sheilaism, um, hmm. you know, her own her own thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, the problem with being out there is that, you know, the, the great storms that, that do shape and form our deepest identities right now are, are the political and the economic orders, um, more so than the, the religious or the, the institutional church. Um, that doesn't matter in people's lives. I'm going to go ahead and make that argument. I'm sure other people disagree. Mm -hmm. I um, mean, it certainly doesn't matter in the people that I think you're sort of most connected to, actually, at your age and, mm -hmm. and where you are. So how is a community created? Because we're not going to be able to stand or resist without a community. And, and, and one of the aspects that Bonhoeffer um, found was that when the church failed, the only community he had was a community of resistance. Mm. That community of resistance was not necessarily motivated by Jesus, not necessarily motivated by faith in the incarnation or, or the hope of the incarnation or the resurrection. That community was motivated by the conservative idea that we have to stop Hitler or he's going to destroy our country. Mm. So... When people now are looking for, they, they instinctually know something's wrong. They instinctually know that the corruption is so vast and so deep, you know, and, and this is true on both the conservative and the liberal sides of the spectrum. You know, conservatives understand that there's kind of a level of corruption as well. Mm -hmm. And they, and their hope was that voting in Trump was going to drain the swamp, so to speak. Right. Um, my problem with that is that if you are so locked into your own political ideology, you can't see the corruption of your own side, mm -hmm. um, then you're far more likely to be deluded and also enlisted in a kind of civil war against those who, who are also seeking to maintain power. There's no community at that point. You have to make a political decision. Um, now, I appreciate, for instance, Doug Paget's understanding that in the midst of this imperfection, you have to at least make some kind of political decision and vote. Mm -hmm. um, I think he very strongly. I, yeah. I hope I, I, I have him correct here. You totally do. You you can't be an Anabaptist at this point and just wash your hands of the whole thing. And right. And uh, I've been accused of being a member of the Hauerwasian Mafia on occasion. <laughs> um, but. But I think that uh, Doug is right in the fact that you're going to have to make an imperfect choice. Um, but that leaves people bereft of a spiritual grounding for their community. 
Hmm. You know, you, you, I hate the fact that all that we have are binaries. So if you're a millennial and you want to sort of, you understand, you have this deep commitment to, um, for lack of a better word, God, um, and maybe you're even a, a millennial has a commitment to Christ, um, where do you go? Right. And and there are some alternative forms of the church that are emerging now, right? I mean, you know, they're they're shown in the expressions of things like Wild Goose Festival, and right. you sort of you have your your superstars like you know, Naughty Bowls Weber and mm-hmm. and uh, Rob Bell and you know Trip and you know I mean you have your sort of the pantheon of you know Brian McLaren and others, mm-hmm. but are those personalities creating or helping to create communities that are going to be strong enough to offer spiritual resistance to the onslaught of this house is you, this car is you, this thing is you, your consumption is you, um, your political party is you, um, offer a community where identity can be structured um, on something other than the orders of capitalism and Mm-hmm. And democracy, and I'm, you know, going to just go ahead and really step in it here. Um, <laughs> democracy and capitalism can be the final idols mm-hmm. um, to keep us from faithfulness in in Christ, because more often than not, um, they may blind us uh, to the needs of the of the disenfranchised and of the dispossessed. Mm-hmm. So the church is going to have to figure out where it's going to stand. Are you going to? Is the church going to stand with Black Lives Matter? Right. Um, you know, is the church going to stand with maybe at some point keeping its mouth shut and letting those who are um, suffering the oppressions of this of this world from the powerful uh, to to let them teach them mm-hmm. uh, where Christ positions Himself. Because if Christ does position himself with the suffering of the world, then that's where Christ is speaking today. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's hard to, to hear and stand and be in those places without a community. In the last chapter of the book, I do write um, that, that Bonhoeffer's understanding of the church was a place where the disciplines of the arcane, and that's very difficult, the arcane disciplines, that's very difficult phrase to sort of tease out. But if Mm -hmm. anything else, it it means that the Eucharist, prayer, um, keeping liturgy even, uh, it it becomes something more than a cultural expression of Christianity. It becomes the formation of identity. So the Eucharist is one of the most radical acts that Christians can do. And, And the place for that right now is in the church. It doesn't mean that Eucharist can't take place outside the walls of First Church of the Frigidaire or, you know, uh, you know, or the institutional church, but it means that Eucharist is a, is a formation of us as human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and that if I'm taking Eucharist and I understand that people around the world are also taking the body and blood of Christ, I cannot engage in practices that would mean their destruction. Um, I cannot engage in practices mm. that would mean their dehumanization because right. they, are, they are part of the table as well. 
and and even those who we call nuns or atheists or you know in the conspiracy we don't know um at some point uh who is at the table so to speak mm-hmm. and bonhoeffer reckons with this when he he says i assume responsibility i assume the guilt for what i'm doing he never tries to justify his movement to the conspiracy he just says everything else has failed and i have to act as a responsible person in this situation mm-hmm. and and eucharist forms us as as people um to to respond in those moments and now the the my colleagues and friends on the conservative side of the spectrum would say well you know that's why you know the state is important because it's the state that bring down hitler and you know, bon- and we have to be like Bonhoeffer. And if we have to kill or assassinate to get what we want, uh, which is, you know, the freedom of the oppressed, um, then we're going to follow Bonhoeffer. I mean, this is what, you know, people uh, who are, resonate more with uh, Metaxas, I think, would, would argue. Mm-hmm. But my argument would go, no, the, the place for that resistance should have come in the community of faith that was willing to incarnate the presence of God in the world before you had to start killing all of those people. Last question, where can listeners get in contact with you and and stay connected? Well, I am on Twitter. Uh, You know, I do the tweets um, Mm -hmm. because that's where all the cool kids are. That's right. Um, So... Uh, I think it's Jeffrey C. Pugh. Hold on one, just one second. I've got to make sure I know what I'm giving the right address there for. So, because Twitter is what's happening, right? That's right. That's what I understand. So it's at Jeffrey C. Pugh. Um, Also on Facebook, but I'm thinking about giving up Facebook, not just for Lent, but for good, because... As everyone else, I'm a little disturbed about how we're being manipulated by data mining. Right. Um, but for the meantime, I'm going to stay there. And you can also go to Elon University uh, to their uh, website, go into the religious studies, and my email address is there. Perfect. Which is nice. The email address will continue um, after uh, uh, I retire in May. Oh, okay. So. Cool. No, no Snapchat? You're not a Snapchatter? No, I'm, I, I don't show up on Instagram. I don't show up on Snapchat. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, uh, I'm still trying to, even though I've been on Twitter for a few years, I'm still in awe at the way that some people are able to use that to build constituencies. It's true. That's and, what I'm trying to do. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not able to build constituencies, uh, you know, in the way that I would like to. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of the issue is that I'm just so freaking busy with my job. Right. So it, after May the 19th, uh, all those institutional constraints will come off. So who knows? I may just start Snapchat. That's right. Wouldn't that be you know, great? Snapchat everything Jeffrey but, Pugh. You know, everything but Tinder. That's, that's right. All right. Uh, we'll we'll swipe swipe left on that, uh, and we'll we'll end it. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Jeffrey. You you've been just absolutely wonderful, so insightful. I've learned a ton. I hope the listeners have learned as well, um, and hopefully you enjoyed having this conversation as well. 
Yeah, and if I offended anybody, I hope that I offended you for the right reasons. The fire's gone now from your I think Dr. Pugh is one of the most important Bonhoeffer scholars, and I really think that what makes him so important is he takes a lot of the concepts and a lot of the theology of resistance that Bonhoeffer developed and really, I think, applies it in the most well-intentioned and careful way um, possible into our 2018 American context. And I think, like I said before in the beginning of the episode, I think Bonhoeffer really has a lot to say to us today as 21st century Americans. And I think Dr. Pugh really uh, condenses that uh, into a really readable way, in a way that um, I think helps a lot of a, a lot of people like myself um, better understand how I can do theology um, and even just simply live as a person in the 2018 American context and what I can do to resist the power structures that be, that are evil and disgusting and immoral. And I think Dr. Pugh really gets into that. And I, and I think he truly, for himself, embodies the spirit of Bonhoeffer. I mean, Dr. Pugh was one of the people on the front lines of the, one of the clergy in the front lines during the Charlottesville event, um, where white supremacists marched and, um, and then were met with resistance with others. Um, and Dr. Pugh was one of those clergy uh, that resisted and protested against those white supremacists. And uh, I think he really embodies that, uh, embodies the spirit of Bonhoeffer in resisting uh, supremacy and nationalism um, just in the same way that Bonhoeffer did. So also, what did you think of Laura from Comrades? She's just so great. Every time that they come through Minneapolis, uh, I love chatting with her. She's just so bubbly and, and carefree and just really a wonderful person to talk to. Uh, and I really hope, if there is any artist so far in these Religionless Church episodes that you, uh, that I would recommend you really should check out, it really needs to be comrades. They are so good. They really are amazing. And so, again... Make sure you check them out uh, and support their work. And as always, make sure you support my work. I would love for you to support me on Patreon or if, if money uh, is something you can't uh, just give out, um, even for a buck a month, uh, you can certainly share my work, uh, share those episodes um, on social media. Uh, I've got a lot of writings uh, online as well on my website. Be sure to share those around. Uh, with friends or with family or whoever you think might be interested in my work. So please do that. Uh, support my work in that way as well. And with that, I bid you goodbye.